One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we look at the latest updates from the ground, examine the impact of the conflict on British politics a month on from the invasion, and we speak to the host of The Telegraph's off-script podcast, Stephen Edgington, about his recent trip to Poland. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. Where Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 35, and I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, and Mutaz Ahmed from the comment team. I started by asking Dom for his thoughts on the war's most recent developments. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Uh, Last 24 hours, fairly quiet, as we've seen in recent days. Russia has reverted to the tactic we've seen of late of long-range artillery and shelling. So uh, Kyiv and Chernihiv were hit overnight. This uh, uh, idea or or the the message that Russia put out that they were going to um, suspend or cease or what have you, uh, draw down their operations in those areas to concentrate in the east in the Donbass um, is is likely happening. I mean, there's evidence that they are moving back over the border into Belarus for reorganisation, reconstitution and repair. Um, of course, that doesn't mean there's a ceasefire or doesn't doesn't mean there's any cessation in hostilities. So it's it's it shouldn't surprise us that there's continued shelling and and shouldn't surprise us that there was kind of heavier shelling than normal. It's a it's a bit of a statement. I mean, I think most people watching would would suggest that. Russia's moved or concentration on the on the east is a is a tacit admission that they they realise they can't compete um, on all these uh, all, all these strategic fronts that we've talked about recently, um, and so unsurprisingly they've gone back to the sort of heavy heavy shelling. Um, so that's what we saw overnight there. Uh, I mean, British MOD were saying that, that, that this this move is uh, to likely compensate. Um, for the, uh, the admission that they were struggling to maintain more than one axis, axis of advance. Um, the only other thing uh, overnight is there was a, a very large explosion inside Russia uh, at an ammunition site in Belgorod, which is about 20 k's inside Russia, just across the border from, from Kharkiv, same distance inside uh, Russia as Kharkiv is to the on, on the Ukrainian side of the border. Huge explosion there. Um, don't know what it, what it was. Uh, various suggestions. It was either a missile strike or possibly Ukrainian 
special ops forces or possibly mishandling. Russia has has a bit of form of, of mishandling ammunition. There was a, a, a site in August 2019, another one October the following year, that went up um, that, that suggests that their ammunition handling procedures or the age of some of the weapons that are stored in these places are not uh, quite as they as they should be, ideally. Um, and that might be what happened last night. Um, we, we, we don't know. But what we do know for sure is that the, this site is, um, has, has suffered ex- um, sus- um, sustained damage. And I'll pause there. Thanks very much, uh, Dom. There's one thing I just want to ask you about as well. Um, Ukraine's armed forces say there's a danger of ammunition exploding at Chernobyl uh, nuclear power station. Um, so there's, there's still issues around Chernobyl. Can you just update us as to the latest there? The, so the Russians are occupying it and the Ukrainians are getting worried. Yeah, that's that's it in a, in a nutshell. I mean, basically, these sites and the Chernobyl site in particular can't just be left left to fester on its own. There's a huge amount of work that's that's gone on there for the last few decades since '86, since it uh, since it exploded to keep it keep it safe. Um, and the fear, the suggestion is that the, the Russian forces, firstly, don't don't really know what they're doing there, don't know how to um, how to look after it because they haven't had to, and they are military forces. They're not necessarily um, experts in making safe nuclear sites, uh, and also that they're not particularly interested because they've got got other things to. Other things to worry about. So the degradation of those sites, plus the occasional bit of armed action, um, haven't seen much of late. That that happened earlier in, in the war, where there was actually, um, you know, we saw fighting around around the area itself. Um, but there has been a lot of movement through that area. We suggested a couple of days ago, or we mentioned reports saying that um, that Russia was rather sensibly doing its rear rearward passage of lines, so moving troops out of the contact area through Chernobyl, because that's less likely that Ukraine would, would try and attack them there. So it's seen quite a lot of movement in that area um, of late, which is not only good uh, for um, the safety of the site because it kicks up dust from the ground and um, that the radiation levels were spiking in the area just through the through the amount of traffic going through there. Um, but also if they're not looking after any ammunition that's in the area um, and allowing it to, to either be, be hit um, that also is an extremely dangerous place to be storing unsafe ammunition. So it's it's a, it's a pretty worrying um, turn of events. The sooner that place can be sealed down or avoided or have some sort of local arrangement between Ukraine and Russia to make it safe and uncontested, the better, quite frankly. Thanks very much, Tom. Um, for Mutaz and Dom, there's a, there seems to be quite a lot of movement in the diplomatic arena as well. Sergei Lavrov is in China and he's heading to India next week. Could we talk a little bit about that? Um, I know there might not be much to say, but it, it looks as if Russia's you know, trying to patch up some of its uh, some of its alliances, which have come under some strain in the past in the past month. Yes, um, and that that's necessary for Russia because it's found that its military uh, adventurism has backfired, and it is now looking for uh, a, a way out, a way out, a way to to uh, save face uh, without looking totally defeated. Uh, before the domestic Russian population. And to do that, it's going to need uh, as much support as it can get from the likes of China and India, and it's going to need Turkey to stay somewhat neutral. Uh, the talks in Istanbul have been relatively positive. I mean, I, I've spoken to two types of people. Uh, there are those who say the Russians have never negotiated in good faith. This isn't a good faith negotiation. Uh, they're just trying to buy time while they focus forces on this, um, uh, focus their efforts on this Mariupol corridor and focus on the south. Um, uh, and that these these Ukrainian demands for 
some sort of security guarantee from the West um, will never be accepted. And, and of course, there's a Crimea issue as well and other issues. And there are others who are actually quite hopeful that you could end up with some sort of fudge where there is at least a cessation of hostilities, uh, a cessation of the war, a ceasefire, uh, and then a 15, 20-year, 30-year process to decide all the other things. Um, so it, it's mixed, but at least the negotiations are look relatively serious. And at least Russia now realises that war alone isn't going to... Uh, is, isn't going to um, to conclude this. India, don't forget, has has maintained its links to Russia and and been very quiet when it comes to condemning the action. Uh, India is a is almost exclusive in the world of, of fielding T ninety tanks. And if it wasn't for the order for T ninety tanks, then the the um, the plant in Russia would have shut down. So there are long standing ties there between uh, India and Russia. It's not ideal that they that they are prepared to equivocate on this. You'd like to see um, such a large democracy um, speaking out for the rule of law. Um, so it is it is upsetting and, and uh, disappointing to see India's stance on this. China, kind of what we have seen just over the last few weeks, they've been uh, more and more vocal in their, in their, if not support, then refusal to condemn um, and uh, yeah, it, it comes down to the sanctions. They, they, they're very vocal on on the the sanctions that have been levied against Russia. Of course, a lot of what China is saying is is through the lens of any possible eyes on Taiwan. And I think China has been very um, wary or, or surprised at the uh, unity of the West over this. And I think they'd, they'd see any um, any possible future effort against Taiwan if it if it drew a similar response from from um, the international community then that that could hurt them so for for different reasons both uh, both countries um are um are willing to continue their relationship a warm relationship with moscow um just a uh, couple more things before we get on to talking about british politics in more depth um Recently, The Telegraph has just published a piece, um, <clears throat> sorry, a report by our Whitehall editor, Tony Diver, on um, remarks by Brigadier Richard Cantrell, who says Russia's failure so far to conquer Ukraine should not dupe the West into thinking their threat is abating. Um, I just thought this might be interesting to explore because so many of our podcasts in the past week, you know, we, we talk a lot about Russian losses of armour, troop morale and so on and so forth. Um, but th- this is this is a... a, a and the opposite opinion, or at least at least a warning, not to, not to be complacent. Um, uh, Dom, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean he's absolutely right. I don't think anybody who seriously watches this um, does think the threats are baiting. I mean, as far as Putin is concerned, if they if they ended this thing now with some kind of fudge about the territory of the Donbass and the land corridor to the south, I think he'd he'd see that as a win, or he'd be he'd be perfectly happy with that. If you look at if you look at it over over the decades um, since Ukraine split from the Soviet Union or since the Soviet Union collapsed, then you can see how Russia has um, never given up, never really given up its ambition to to take Ukraine um, back into the fold or at least have it in its sphere of influence. Um, so in 2014, uh, we saw the action in the south and, and against Crimea um, and the rise of the separatist areas to the east of Ukraine. I mean, so even though there was a, an, an ugly stalemate, they were still fighting. Some people were still dying every every month uh, in that line of control in, in the east. Um, I think it's now kind of beyond beyond sensible um, debate that Crimea 
uh, is not going back to Ukraine. It would take a huge, huge force of will uh, and international politics to make that happen. So you can see a scenario that Putin can see his his aim slowly um, edging in the right direction. So if, if he sees this as another, he'd love to have taken the whole country, of course. He'd love to have cut Kiev off in a lightning strike in the first hours of the war. That didn't happen. But he doesn't really care about the, the number of people um, that, he's, that he's killing to, to do this. So if he sees this as incrementally moving towards a position he wants to be in the long term and um, his territorial gains are, are not absolutely, are not um, removed and he sees there is some win from this aggression, then he's going to be more emboldened in the future. So if there is a messy ceasefire now, um, I, I think that's not going to be the end of it. I think he would see this as a time to rearm, hopefully learn from what, what's happened here, re-equip and retrain his forces and have, have a go again in another few years. So we've got to be very, very careful about this. I mean, Russia has received a bloody nose here, but um, but I don't think he cares. And, and, and so it's absolutely right not to underestimate Russia and to ex- uh, and to see that that Ukraine is still in a, in a very precarious position. Thanks very much, Dom. And finally, just before we move on to our central section, um, Poland uh, presented a what they called a radical plan to shun Russian oil, gas and coal by imposing a total embargo on Russian coal in April. I'm just reading from, um, from an official Twitter account here and abandon Russian oil and gas by the end of the year. Um, that seems, uh, seems something that we should, we should talk about a little bit, Mutaz and Dom. Um, what what do we make of that? Are they are they leading European efforts to to to, to shun um, Russian hydrocarbons or catching up? It, it's a necessary move by Poland. Um, uh, of course, Poland is is perhaps the closest uh, EU country, or or, or, or or perhaps the EU country most aware of the, of the Russian threat. And actually, it's it's a much easier move for Poland than it is for say Germany or France, because Poland has been. Uh, moving in the, in this direction for some time, uh, even before the invasion of Ukraine, it's been focusing on energy independence, which is something the EU and perhaps even the U- the UK uh, haven't focused on um, enough. It, it adds more pressure on Germany, which is by far the slowest mover. Um, uh, it it um, uh, and it is now being uh, pressured by Russia to pay for not just to continue paying for oil and gas, but to pay using rubles. Uh, so not not just continue consuming Russian hydrocarbons, but to prop up the Russian currency at the same time. So Germany is in, in, in you know, under a lot of pressure, uh, and Poland is in a very smart way, in a way that, that doesn't necessarily hurt Poland very much, adding to it. Um, I think a lot of people in Europe will see that as necessary uh, and, and see it as Poland being in the right again. Uh, and uh, and Eastern European countries, that Eastern European bloc of the EU, uh, once again in the, uh, at tension with um, Berlin. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because if you have a think about what this war's all about, is it more about the security aspect, NATO and um, Ukraine being a military threat to Russia, as Putin suggests, or was it more of a, an economic and social threat? So, if, if, as Ukraine leant towards the West, wanted to embrace the or to join the EU, um, which one of those is more damaging for Putin? Now, personally, I, I, I think it was an absolute fallacy to say that Ukraine posed a, a large military threat 
um, to Russia. Um, I think there were enough signals that NATO were were cool on uh, Ukraine's uh, potential membership, even though in 2008 they, they said um, NATO said that Ukraine will join uh, NATO, which was you know, a very bold statement at the time. But I think most people would see that that we kind of rode back a little bit from that idea. But in terms of the EU, it's more interesting because as uh, Ukraine leant towards the West and, and was interwoven with with society and uh, Western way of thinking, um, it's it's a it's a that in itself is a challenge to Russia to have this prosperous, um, lively, vibrant, uh, exciting place to live that's a former Soviet republic on the border of Russia, demonstrating the power of democracy. That was a real threat to Putin. So, what what is the greater threat for him? the sort of EU or NATO to, to boil it right down. Um, and, um, and I mean, I spoke to Malcolm Chalmers, the, the director general of, of Rusi this morning, and he was saying basically Ukraine's gone through a system reset, um, a sort of, uh, you know, revert to factory settings over the last few years. And is trying to ditch the old Soviet you know, slash uh, Russian model and trying to uh, squirt in a new bit of a bit of Western EU code. And, and that that shift in the in how the country sees itself and where it sees its future, I think there's possibly much more of a reason for this war than the the hard security military edge. And if that's the case, then those things are going to endure long after this. So as I said a few moments ago, if if Putin and Russia are not ejected um, in pretty maximalist terms from the territory of Ukraine, then I, I think they will just see this as the latest round in a long fight and, and there'll be more to come. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you, Musas. Um, talking politics, uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about the impact of the Ukrainian conflict on British politics. Um, usually every Wednesday, we do a politics space post PMQs. That's Prime Minister's Questions uh, for our international listeners. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at a month on how the conflict has impacted on Boris Johnson. And again, for our um, international listeners, we, we know that the Ukrainian conflict has hugely impacted on, on all of our politics. But as a British newspaper, we're probably best placed to throw some light on uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky's, um, one of his staunchest allies in the British PM. And it'd be good to dig into that a little bit and explain what position Boris was in before this conflict, how it's impacted on, on him and whether it's making much of a difference, if if any, on his decisions um, to do with Ukraine. So, uh, Musaz Ahmed, would you give our listeners a sense of uh, Boris Johnson's position on the uh, 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 the outbreak of the conflict, um, ju- just so we can give some background into how he, how he's behaving now? Just before the conflict, just before the invasion, the Prime Minister was on the ropes. Um, we were coming on this uh, podcast uh, on the, on these spaces, uh, asking whether he could um, uh, survive the Partygate uh, scandal, and it is a scandal. Uh, where his officials uh, and perhaps even he himself uh, were breaking COVID rules that they set for the rest of the, of, of the country. And at the time, a lot of us thought it was inevitable that uh, the letter sh- threshold to trigger a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister would be met and that he would be fighting for his political life. Uh, then Ukraine happened. Uh, and it was interesting that... Uh, at the time, one of the arguments the Prime Minister's allies used was, we could be facing a war in Europe. Do you really want to depose the Prime Minister at this time? Um, and it turned out that, that their argument, w- with the aid of an actual invasion, convinced the 
Conservative Parliamentary Party. So fast forward, you know, skip over the war and come back to UK politics. Yesterday, you had every Conservative MP trooping into the Park Plaza Hotel on Westminster Bridge to to have to have dinner and drinks with the Prime Minister. So that's what that's that's the change, right? We've gone from the Conservative Party in full revolt, backbenchers in full revolt, uh, uh, very senior Tories like David Davis uh, telling the Prime Minister to go publicly, to now people like David Davis and Ian Duncan Smith, you know, crossing the bridge, going to Park Plaza Hotel to have a good time. Some would call it a, a party with the Prime Minister. That's what Ukraine has done uh, in terms of the Prime Minister's standing. The second thing is that if we're looking at the impact on UK politics as a whole, there was a moment of unity when the invasion happened because Britain's strong stance on Putin and Russia is a, is now a cross-party position. There is full consensus uh, that Britain needs to be hawkish on the question of you know, anything to do with the Kremlin. And that's as a result of the Salisbury poisonings. Uh, that's as, as a result of, of, of uh, um, uh, regret, actually, over Syria and the failure to, to intervene there. Um, so we saw Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, and Boris Johnson unite on that question. Today, at Prime Minister's Questions, not one of the questions posed to Boris Johnson was about Ukraine. It was about taxation, and it was about Partygate. And it feels like we're back to where we were just before the invasion. And that suggests that perhaps the consequences of Ukraine on British politics will not be as permanent or even as, as long-standing uh, 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 as we once assumed. I'd be interested to hear from both of you a little more about to what extent do we think that Brit- that, that Johnson's performance and Britain's um, performance, if you will, during this conflict... Uh, is down to Johnson himself, and to what extent it's actually he, he just he just happened to be in place because the British strategy has been there all along. I mean, we've been training and arming the Ukrainians for a while now. Uh, I'd be cool on suggesting that Britain's response has been directly because of Boris Johnson. I think um, a couple of things. It's firstly largely been it's gone with the grain of Britain, British society, British politics to stand up to bullies, try and help people in need. Um, and reach out to our friends, allies and partners. That's been embodied in in Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, to a lesser extent, um, Liz Truss, Foreign Secretary. But I think there's been they've been they've been active. Clearly, other other countries have been less so. So we shouldn't just expect these things to happen. But they are sort of in line with with British values and where we come from. Um, I think other things might might give a bit of a steer on where the prime minister's coming from so the somewhat lackluster effort to get uh, ukrainian refugees into the country which is a wider policy question that needs to draw in a lot of different different departments get some heads together make some plans get some compromises work some problems through um that's been less good uh, which which could have helped by a, an injection of political capital time and effort from the top um and also the some of the languages used, sort of claiming the other day, talking about these 6,000 missiles um, that Britain was going to supply. I mean, they actually, when you dig into it, they, they were promised at the, the donor conference that Britain convened a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so, yes, it's 6,000 missiles, but not, not all from Britain. I mean, it was just, it was coming from a number of different places. It, it was coming to Britain, m- m- most of them coming to Britain for onward transport by the Royal Air Force. But 
it was it was a bit casual with the language so was that was that helpfully sort of suggesting that we were doing more than we actually are and i think we're doing quite a lot but you know we didn't, didn't need any more you know, extra extra kudos um or was that loose language because he didn't have a grasp of the detail i'm not i'm not sure i think Paul johnson's known for for fairly good grasp of detail um so i think yes he's he, i don't look at um what i consider to be a, a pretty strong response from the uk in this crisis to be solely or possibly even largely down to the the prime minister and he's a sort of lucky beneficiary sitting on top of all this sort of good action being taken by various people in various uh, various areas of, across government yeah just to, to add to that you know but britain has been the perhaps the most hawkish um country on russia for years now since cameron definitely since cameron um on the question of Nord Stream 2 uh, the position has been pretty consistent much more consistent actually than 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 the, the than the leadership from Washington DC um, uh, Joe Biden was softer on Nord Stream 2 than either Boris Johnson or Theresa May or even David Cameron uh, were uh, but I, I, allies of Boris Johnson would say this they'd say remember I, I believe it was 2018 I may have got that year wrong but when the Salisbury poisonings happened Britain's response then was very strong and there was a coordinated expulsion of Russian diplomats from across the world. And who was Foreign Secretary at that time? It was Boris Johnson. Um, And so they would say that for many of these years, you know, for at least four or five years, he's been at the he's been spearheading this Western, uh, this block of Britain plus Eastern European countries in encouraging countries like Germany and France to take a harder, harder line stance on Kremlin thuggery. Um, and they would say that it's that experience as foreign secretary uh, that allowed him really to pounce on this Ukraine question very early on uh, to develop this very close relationship with Zelensky. And it's been extraordinary the things Zelensky has said about Boris Johnson. Um, there hasn't been criticism of Boris Johnson uh, from Zelensky in the way that he's criticised Schultz and Merkel and even Joe Biden. Um, So Boris Johnson's allies would say that when it comes to, you know, taking a very strong line on on Russia, uh, it's been Boris Johnson. Um, And they would say that many Eastern European leaders would agree with that analysis and that Zelensky agrees with it too. Um, And I I think they, they, they... it would it, be interesting once, hopefully, um, uh, things calm down a little bit to figure out the exact dynamic between Boris Johnson and Zelensky because it appears that they text quite often, um, just as Boris Johnson texts uh, a lot with Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia. This, this informal approach to international politics, this man-to-man approach... Uh, from the prime minister may have helped him sort of get a sense of 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 the Ukrainian mindset and, and Zelensky's mindset. Um, I don't know. So his allies would say his his unique style of leadership actually helped. Thanks very much, Musaz. I just want to ask one more question of you, and you sort of touched upon it earlier, I think. But to our international listeners and even our British listeners, you, you mentioned that today at PMQs the questions weren't about Ukraine; they're about taxes, they're about Partygate, that sort of thing. Um, so quickly, you know, what should we know about his position now, um, heading, heading into the next few weeks of this crisis? What should we know about his d- domestic position? 
it, as things stand, it's pretty strong. Um, Conservative MPs who submitted letters of no confidence in their leader, such as Andrew Bridgen, have been forced to retract those letters just a few weeks a few weeks later. That's that's a humiliation for them, the rebels. Um, so Boris Johnson's in a good position now. Where there is risk for him is there are two big risks. The first is that this Partygate uh, scandal clearly hasn't gone away. It's back now. Uh, even a war in Ukraine um, didn't stop it from completely coming off, coming off the agenda. And, and we know that uh, these fines which are going to be issued to uh, people who are at these parties, they're going to come in tranches. So we saw 20 yesterday. There are probably going to be uh, another dozen or more soon. Um, and one of the people who may receive a fine is the Prime Minister himself, at which point... You know, he could be accused of misleading Parliament, of breaking the ministerial code, and there will be some pressure on him to resign. Um, His most senior civil servant, the Cabinet Secretary, may receive a fine. His Chancellor may receive a fine. So there's lots of risk there. Uh, But but I think the consensus in Westminster now is that even if he does receive a, a fine, he'll probably survive it. The second risk is that the Ukraine... Well, the war in Ukraine has added to the cost of living crisis. We were, we were already going to face huge economic consequences for two years of lockdown. Uh, there was already going to be a squeeze on energy prices. Oil prices were already pretty high. Um, we were already seeing some post-lockdown inflation. And the war in Ukraine has exacerbated that a great deal. Uh, and it looks now that infl- like inflation across the West isn't going to be transitory, it's not going to be temporary, it's going to be a pretty permanent feature, in part because of the war in Ukraine, and that squeezes people's pockets. And he may ultimately, though Ukraine helped him survive in the short term, he may pay a a pretty heavy price at the polls in the next general election um, as a result of all these financial consequences. Um, So the, the, the picture is mixed, but he'll be happy that he's still Prime Minister and and he has unfortunately um, he has um, the conflict to thank for that and and being a war leader to thank. Thank you very much, Mutaz. Um, just before we finish, Dom, uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts about the UK's new Arctic strategy that's been released? Um, if you could give us a just a quick sense of, of what is it, and what is it, and what does it involve? So the British military have said we need to refocus the uh, attention back to the the Arctic and the high north as as we used to have. I mean, that's why this, this massive NATO exercise, about 30,000 people exercise cold response, is happening um, at the moment. So don't take your eyes off that, uh, off that northern flank. Uh, what do we mean by that? That's kind of f- from northern uh, Norway, um, uh, either for any potential Russian move on the ground through there, or more importantly, uh, the, the submarines that come through there. The the old Greenland, Iceland, UK gap um, needs to be regenerated. There's been some new tech gone in there, as in acoustic sensors on the seabed to listen for, for Russian submarines coming out, trying to break out into the North Atlantic, looking for primarily the British and the French um, nuclear-armed and nuclear-powered submarines, but also the Americans as well. Um, so that whole area uh, is, is a, an area of, of sharp focus in recent years, which has gone on the back of... Um, Russian uh, remilitarization over the last the last couple of decades, um, the submarine fleet of which has been a, a big a big beneficiary of that. 
So the area has, has come under renewed focus. Um, also, in sort of purely sort of British military terms, the, the Royal Marines or the, or the Royal Navy has, has re, reorganised slightly. Um, and the, the Royal Marines, which is obviously part of the Royal Navy, uh, is now going to have two um, littoral response groups. The littoral being the sort of the bit where the sea meets the land, basically. Um, and it's all about up to 50, 100 miles in, inland. That strip is called the littoral. That's where... That's where most people in the world live. That's where the industry is. That's where the um, political activity is. So that that bit, being able to fight from the sea and get into land, um, is very important. So being a, a littoral expert is um, is a kind of, you know, the stock to buy at the moment. Um, so the Royal, Royal Marines have, have regenerated or reorganised slightly um, around these two littoral response groups. So four or five commando based in Arbroath in Scotland, um, with a load of enablers from the from the navy navy sort of you know. Boats, basically, is when they say enablers, boats and, uh, and a few other bits and bobs uh, will be facing north and littoral response group south will base itself or be structured out of Dukum, the port in uh, Oman, sort of looking out into the Indo-Pacific area. So that that's how the sort of Navy and the Royal Marines sort of see themselves as reorganising. And, th- and that bit to the north, the littoral response group north and, um, and the focus on the high north it has become uh, much more... Uh, to the fore of British military thinking of late. Um, just finally, the um, the P-8 Poseidon, the sub-hunting aircraft, the new fleet um, that Britain has bought, they're based up in Lossiemouth in Scotland. Um, Norway have bought the same aircraft and there's a, a, a British aircraft can land in Norway, be, be reserviced and, and the, the um, servicing schedule will be absolutely as per would be in the britain in britain and vice versa so so really an effort just just of late to to, to put more focus onto that uh, onto that area of of the arctic and um and the high north like i say primarily because of um, any sort of russian submarine activity but also to to um make sure that that flank um used to be called the ace allied command europe uh, mobile force that that bit up there is probably taken care of and it's not um it's not seen as a as a sort of soft flank for NATO, for for russia to to try and exploit my colleague alice hearing managed to get a few minutes with the telegraph stephen edgington stephen is our video comment editor and host of the off script podcast last week he was in poland talking to poles from all walks of life including the deputy pm piotr glinski Alice spoke to him about his impressions of the Polish reaction to the war in Ukraine. Steve, thanks for coming in to chat. Um, so you were in Poland very recently, uh, last week I think it was, and you chatted to the Deputy Prime Minister Glinski. What did you talk to him about and how did that go down? So that's right, I was in Poland recently making a couple of films for the comment desk around Poland's role in helping Ukrainian refugees and just more generally about Poland's sort of role in the Ukraine crisis. And as a part of that, I spoke to several Polish ministers, including, as you say, the Deputy Prime Minister Glinski. We were talking about Poland's role within the European Union and Europe's response to the Ukraine crisis and how the European Union has reacted, how it's helped Poland, how it's in particular not helped Poland. uh, and, And that's essentially what he says. And also we talked about the fight between values in Europe and this fight in Ukraine is one of obviously a democracy against a tyranny, against an autocracy, but also it highlights divisions within the West and Poland's values 
are very different to France's values or Germany's values. So this was a major theme of the interview. Okay, so what was uh, the first the first sort of thing that he brought up? Um, what do you think he was the most passionate about? Yeah, well, we started the interview by talking about Britain and Britain's relationship with Poland in particular, our historic relationship. So I asked Galinsky, what does Britain mean to you? And he basically said that our culture was fantastic and we have this fantastic national heritage. But when I dug a little further, uh, it wasn't necessarily the, 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 the best and most positive comments that I was expecting. He talked about the sort of betrayal of Poland during the Second World War when France and Britain uh, failed to come to Poland's aid both during its Nazi invasion and during its Soviet occupation. Obviously, you know, from our perspective, it was very difficult to intervene in both those areas. But from Poland's view- viewpoint, we really betrayed them there. And Winston Churchill's actions, for example, were really not not good for Poland. So he was upset about that. But then I also mentioned something which is really interesting, and that he was part of what was called the Solidarity Movement back in the 1980s. Now, the Solidarity Movement was basically a movement of trade unionists in Poland who campaigned for free and democratic elections and for economic liberalisation within Poland against the Soviet rule, against the communists who who were in power in Poland. And Margaret Thatcher was a huge supporter of the Solidarity Movement in the 80s. She made a speech in the early 80s when the Soviets brutally repressed the Solidarity Movement. And later on in the 80s, in 1988, she visited Warsaw and she laid a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And again, she made supportive comments about the Solidarity Movement. And it was only a couple of years later that that movement was successful in toppling the communist regime. Now, as I said, Glinsky was a member of this movement. So I asked about what he thought of Thatcher and her support of this. And this is where his comments become a bit more positive. And he remembers this historic relationship that we've had with Britain. And that brings us to today because Britain and Poland have been fighting in a way for liberty and freedom ever since the Cold War. And we've been cooperating through NATO and through other sort of military exercises. And in in recent uh, weeks and months, Boris Johnson and, and Poland and Ukraine have formed a sort of military alliance. They've signed a, tri- a sort of trilateral agreement. And the relationship between Britain and Poland seems to be stronger than, than, than in a long time. So, so this, this is where we started the interview. OK, so then how does that relate to sort of the current state of things with the Ukraine war? Um, so, for example, does Glinsky think that um, Britain is behaving in the right or wrong way when it comes to the war? I think Glinsky basically views Britain, Britain's role as crucial uh, in Europe and as, a, as an ally to Poland. I asked about Britain's relationship with Poland in comparison to France's relationship with Poland and Germany's relationship with Poland and the EU's relationship with Poland. And he basically said that it's completely different because Britain is no longer a member of the European Union. So the question arises, has the relationship become worse or better since Brexit? And obviously many people say that Brexit has completely diminished Britain's role in the world. Glinsky actually said the entirely opposite of that. He said that Brexit has helped Britain and Poland's relationship um, become better because Britain is now free from the shackles of the European Union and the sort of restrictions that Brussels has on foreign policy. And that's enabled a much closer relationship with London and Warsaw since uh, since we left the EU. So it was interesting to, to hear those comments. And I think in recent, as I said, in more recent uh, weeks and months, the military cooperation has increased, and he basically has view, views Britain as one of the most crucial allies 
Poland has in Europe in relation to this this current crisis. Is that in terms of how Britain is helping them with the refugee crisis specifically, or are there other aspects, such as the way that Russia is responding to sanctions and that sort of thing? I think it's in particular... Britain's military support for NATO that has been a historic reason that Poland and Britain have got got on. And Britain has been uh, supplying troops to Eastern Europe for a long time. And if you look at Britain's role within Ukraine since 2014, for example, obviously we've trained tens of thousands of their troops and sent lots of weapons to Ukraine. And Poland has been, uh, basically Poland and Britain have been uh, Ukraine's essentially greatest ally in Europe. Obviously, we're not talking about the United States here, but just in Europe, in terms of military intervention and helping them militarily. So I think Poland really views it through that angle rather than through other sort of geopolitical angles. Britain, I don't think he, ha- he had no nothing negative to say about Britain's role in helping refugees, for example. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't exactly the, the highest thing on his priority when he was talking about our relationship. Having said that, there's another angle towards all of this stuff, and that's the political angle. And Britain has said a lot of positive things about Poland. It hasn't intervened in Polish domestic affairs. And it basically said Poland can kind of get on with whatever they want to do. That contrasts quite sharply with Germany and France's view towards Poland, and in particular, the EU's view towards Poland, because the EU has been much more active in trying to intervene in Polish domestic affairs. And the EU's argument is that Poland, there are serious uh, problems with the Poles' sort of independence of their judiciary with the government's intervention into their uh, judicial system and the EU has got you know there's rising tensions between Poland and the EU because of this the Polish government and Glinski said that this was all politically motivated and it's unjust and that they should be able to run their country however they want and that they're only targeting Poland because the Polish government has a different culture and is very different to Western governments in terms of their values of protecting family, of protecting nation and things like this. And that the European Union, on the other hand, and Western Europe and Western European countries are, are decadent and they're liberal and this is why they're coming after Poland. OK, so did Glinski think that that was a reason why potentially the EU isn't doing a good enough job at protecting Ukraine from Russia? Well, Glinski was savage in his response when I asked about the EU's response to the Ukraine crisis, in particular um, in regards to, to, to helping Poland. So the EU, the European Parliament, just to give a bit of context, has recently voted to continue its economic sanctions against Poland for all the reasons that I mentioned before. And the EU hasn't backed down yet. Now, some people say that, that Brussels is likely to do that in recent in sort of days or weeks, we don't know. But the Polish government is obviously furious that these economic sanctions and, and, uh, are still going ahead. And essentially what it is, is the EU hasn't released certain funds that uh, so were, were allocated to Poland because the EU claims that they don't know where the funds are going to be um, implemented and they're not going to be implemented correctly. So the Polish government says they should release these recovery funds uh, and the European Union won't do so. So Poland, or Galinsky said that... Uh, The EU has offered Poland no real material support. He said that Poland is paying for um, the support they're giving to the Ukrainians uh, out of their own pocket. They're paying, you know, they're they're organising all of these sort of refugee centres and um, processing uh, organisations and things like this on their own. And the EU isn't offering them any help. So he he was totally uh, unhappy to say the least, about uh, Brussels's response to the Ukraine crisis in regards to, to helping Poland and to helping the refugees more generally. 
to summarise, what did you did he give any indication of what could potentially happen with Poland's relationship with both Britain and the EU in regard to the Ukraine war in the next week or two? He was talking more in long term. Um, in a in a sort of long term theme rather than in in sort of short term you know we weren't really talking about in the next few weeks um i think his view goes more 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 wide than that as i say it's sort of more was more general towards the future of europe and i asked him about the there's sort of two visions between um the east of europe and west of europe in terms of how they how they view the future and the first is one of more centralization, one of more European Union, one of more federalization in Brussels, i.e. greater control to the European Union and less sovereignty in individual nation states. Now, the second vision is the Polish vision or the Hungarian vision or the sort of central Eastern European vision. And that's one of looser cooperation, national sovereignty, but still having economic ties and trading and things like this. So I asked him about these two visions and whether he thought the crisis in Ukraine would enable the first vision, the one of more Brussels, to uh, to progress. And he said he wasn't worried about that at all. And he said that the crisis in Ukraine proved that Poland's vision and Hungary's vision for the future of Europe was the one that was stable and the one that was basically correct. He said that the European Union, the people who want closer European Union ties and integration, their vision is one that is utopian. And he says that Poland knows better where utopian ideas go than any other country. And what he was referring to was the communist regime. And he even talked about 100 million victims of the communist regime in relation to this this European Union, you know, this vision of a European superstate. So basically, his argument was that this war in Ukraine proves that you have to fight. You have to fight for your nation. You have to fight for your survival. You have to fight for your values. You have to fight for your family. And the Ukrainians have been exceptional in doing all of these things. And when you compare these values to the values of Western Europe, in particular France and in particular Germany, there's a huge contrast. The Germans and maybe even the Poles, he said, he wasn't sure, or the British or the French, they may not be ready to fight for their values. They, not be, they may not be ready to sacrifice their life for their nation and for their family. And this is the warning that he had was that Europeans need to be ready to fight and to die for their nation. And he's unsure whether we're ready to do so. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful... Follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.